The Saint of the Wilderness, also known as Sheffy, by Jess Carr, Chapter 8, Part 1. Every day thereafter, Robert had to give Bertha Kincanen a full report on Wander Lewinsky. One day, in mid-December, he went through the usual routine. Well, she started to look under a pile of songbooks today, but she stopped and didn't actually pick up one and turn it over. We grinned at each other, and that helped, I think. It's going to take some time yet. Something so well impressed upon the mind is not easily forgotten. For once, Bertha Kincanen made no comment and stood smiling at him. Suddenly, she thrust an envelope in his hands. I thought you might not go up to your room right away, so I didn't put it on your dresser, she said. He had never seen Elizabeth Swecker's handwriting before and could not have identified it except for the return address on the envelope. I think I'll go up to my room now, he said. I figured you would, she said. Just don't forget your supper. It doesn't feel like there's that many pages in the letter. Night came swiftly in December, and before long his room became too dark to read the letter over again for perhaps the fifth or sixth time. The lamp was lit, and he waited for the flame to brighten. He was disappointed that no word or phrase hinted of feelings of endearment toward him, and it was such a long letter with so many chances for undertones of affection. But what was lacking in warmth was more than compensated for by curiosity. Elizabeth wanted to know all about what had happened to Wanda Lewinsky and more about Bertha Kincanen's house and what new things were being made at the Ravencliff Furnace. Suddenly, he looked on the bright side. It was a letter. It was communication. The skeleton of an idea formed in his mind then. He would give her the news in such slight doses and so unclearly that she would write often just to find out the missing details. And last, he would add, There is so much to tell you, but it's too long to write. I'll tell you when I see you. The thought of the teaser line so inspired him, and so sure was he that it would work that he pulled a sheet of paper from his dresser and penned a reply to her letter immediately. I thought you weren't going to forget supper, Bertha called from below. Before he descended the stairs, he reviewed his letter to Elizabeth one more time. Yes, it said what he wanted to say the way he wanted to say it. Before long, she would want to see him. It would only be a matter of time. Within the week, he had not only a reply to his letter, but an invitation to partake of roast goose and boiled chestnuts at the Swecker home on Christmas Day. Some mention was made of pumpkin pie. And did he remember she was loading pumpkins in the field the last time he saw her? And games... The Swecker family traditionally played at Christmas. The letter was warm beyond his wildest dreams. He had planned to get Elizabeth a present for Christmas anyway, but now he would buy an even nicer one. Thinking upon the matter of finding just the right gift, he announced his decision to Bertha Kincanen at breakfast. I'm going into With Withville on Saturday. Cass has given me money to buy presents for the children. I think I'll buy Elizabeth a high-waisted pillacy dress. You'd think she would 
like that for a Christmas present? Bertha looked at him quizzingly and without smiling said, Robert, it might not be wise for you to give your Elizabeth clothing for Christmas. Why not? I'm very knowledgeable along the lines of dry goods. I've had employment in more than one dry goods establishment. It has nothing to do with being able to pick good merchandise. It's just not proper for a young man to give clothing to a young lady. Robert reddened and coughed a little, and said in a low voice, What shall I give her, then? I think some gloves or a chain necklace or some of the playing games she could enjoy during the winter months would please her. He took her advice with some reluctance and bought all three of the items that she had suggested. On the return trip from Withville, snow peppered the ground, but it did not stick to the unfrozen soil. Riding along, Robert tried to think of the Christmas program he had planned for the children, but thoughts of Elizabeth occupied his mind. How pretty she would have looked in the high-waisted pelisse, with her black hair falling down the garment. In spite of what Bertha had said, he was sorry he hadn't bought the dress. He had even decided on the color of mouse gray, and now his grandest plans would be unfulfilled, and Elizabeth would not stand before the smoldering yule log and look beautiful for him in the dress he himself had selected. Perhaps she had no pretty clothes, and the thought of that saddened him all the more. On Christmas morning, he crawled from bed as silently as possible. Bertha Kincanan and all of the valley people still slept, he supposed, but he wanted to be on his way. There was only faint visibility, and that would continue to be so for another two or three hours. But once his horse was on the road and headed in the right direction, the animal would instinctively find her way. He placed his gift for Bertha on the kitchen table and took in exchange several cold biscuits and a baked potato left from supper. Bertha would like the carving knife he had bought her for her and would most probably reward him with a roasted goose or gobbler on which to demonstrate the new tool. He saddled his horse by lantern light and led the animal through the barnyard gate and into the snow-covered main road. The snow was two days old and a fine sleet that had covered it made an eerie crunching sound under the weight of animal hooves in the chill stillness of morning. At the full rising of the sun, his faithful horse had delivered him a third of the distance to Huddle, and more specifically, Elizabeth Swecker's house. The vision he saw while riding east was that same diamond-like glow of reflected sunlight on ice that he had seen at the gap of the Cumber Cumberlands. Uh, there, the similarity uh, ended, for the mountains now on each side of him were closer, seeming almost to crush him in uh, their grip. Cripple Creek, shallow and narrow, had a unique melody on this morning as clear cold water flowed under uh, ice until, crossing the rock ledges, it rippled merrily downstream. 
snow-covered fields sloping down from the mountains looked mirror-like except for the crisscross of animal tracks coming to water. Robert sang a song as he rode, knowing that there were no ears to offend unless the horse should throw him from the saddle. <laughs> he loved to sing, and after a while he sang the little ditty the children had taught him the first week of school. Going to Cripple Creek, going on the run, going to Cripple Creek to have some fun. When he turned into the lane of Elizabeth's house, there was a look only of silent desolation, but before he dismounted, she came through the front door to meet him. For lack of something better to say, he cautioned her about getting her feet wet. They shook hands, and Elizabeth smiled at him faintly. He did not let her hand go while his eyes searched her own. They were still sad eyes, movingly sad eyes, and she focused them on the icy ground. You must have started before sunrise. Yes, I did, Robert said. I wanted to get here as quickly as I could. We have, or we would have saved some of the goose for you, she suggested. I did not come to see the goose. He joined the Swecker family at their sumptuously laden table soon after midday, but his appetite seemed to have deserted him. You're not going you're not doing much damage to the goose, Elizabeth's mother said. I guess that cold baked potato and biscuits I had for breakfast reduced my appetite, Robert said. He dug into his sweet potato more vigorously then, but invariably his eyes would lift from his plate and level on those of Elizabeth's directly across the table. He suddenly occurred it suddenly occurred him how much he liked the way she chewed her food and held her fork in such a dainty ladylike manner. How much Aunt Elizabeth would be impressed with Elizabeth's table manners and the rigid sitting posture she maintained while eating. Half uh, consciously, he mimicked her posture and mannerisms, not mockingly, but with a feeling of endearment. He steadied his gaze toward her down-tilted face until her gaze returned to his own. The question had occurred to him many times before, but now it pressed down on him with a relentless demand. How could any man repudiate one so lovely, so bathed in sweetness, that to behold her was like departing the world and abiding among the angels? The Sweckers had not the gift of table conversation he was accustomed to, but he did not mind that. He had not come to see Wendell and Rebecca Swecker, nor any of their offspring except Elizabeth. A stillness permeated most of the meal, and he missed the mirth and banter of previous Christmas dinners he had enjoyed. There were politely asked and answered questions, and an occasional jest from one of the girls, but not the merriment of volume and numbers he remembered from his holiday dinner dinners at Colonel James White's house. Presently, the bent frame of Wendell Swecker rose from his chair. His son Ben, somewhat dwarfed by his father's height, did likewise. 
The livestock don't know nothing about Christmas, Wendell Swecker said. I don't feed but once a day when the days get this short, but they're looking for it about now. I wonder if I might take my horse out to the barn and give him three or four ears of corn and some water, Robert said. I think we can spare that much and not cheat the mice, Wendell Swecker said, more jokingly now that his stomach was full. He followed Elizabeth's father and brother to the barn and fed his own animal while they trudged, trudged through the snow to break open a haystack in the distance and feed the livestock. As he started back to the house, he saw Elizabeth's face at the window. Breaking the crust of sleet, he balled up a fistful of soft snow and threw it in her direction. He missed the window considerably, which was just as well although he thought the snow too soft to break the glass. Elizabeth, unsmiling, watched him until he rounded the corner of the house. He took a deep whiff of the smoke swirling upward from the house chimney and, reaching the porch, brushed the snow from his shoes. He took the Christmas gifts from the, his saddlebags lying on the porch and re-entered the house. Elizabeth, waited for him in the parlor, and from the kitchen he could hear a high-pitched voice as one of the sisters accompanied herself on the uh, dulcimer. He listened to the slap of the goose quill on the strings for a moment, then said to Elizabeth, Is it Leah or Sarah? Leah does the playing. Sarah is helping Mama with straightening up the kitchen. You suppose we ought to help them? No. Leah, she sits there on the hearth and plays for hours, and Mama and Sarah get the work done before they hardly know it. Robert pulled the house, the homemade chair closer to the parlor fireplace and warmed his hands before handing Elizabeth his gifts. She opened the smallest one first. What's this? I don't know what it is. It's a game called dominoes. I'll show you how to play it after a while. Then her face really came aglow when the small rectangular wooden box revealed a golden colored a gold colored chain necklace. Oh Robert, it's so pretty, but I don't have many places to wear it. Uh, wait a minute, here's something else that goes with it, he said and handed her at the ivory colored kid skin gloves. She hooked the necklace around her slender neck, and he held the gloves so her hands could be inserted. She slid them in gracefully, but not before he could see the wear of uh, summer sweat and uh, winter's ch chapping cold. She wriggled her fingers in the gloves and looked first at them and then back to him. Her pretty face, devoid now of summer sunburn, and looking scrubbed white, came aglow with surprise and pleasure. He felt his own heart would melt at seeing her enjoyment. Robert, you oughtn't to spend your wages on me like this. I'm much pleasured. I know you can tell, but I never gave you any reason to treat me so good. I just wanted to, Elizabeth. You're in my thoughts. I might as well tell you that. You ought not be... Looking at me, Robert, you're forgetting I saw the house you lived in 
in Abingdon, and you're, you've been to college, you ought to be sparking some of those high-fashion Abingdon girls. I saw them in their straw bonnets and boombazine dresses, pardoning, uh, parading around, and the men couldn't keep their eyes away. I'd rather have you in a pair of dirty beaver cloth breeches than every girl in Washington County in the finest Italian silk. I can tell by looking at you that your talk is straight, and I'm obliged, but there's other considerations. What considerations? A man wouldn't want a woman another man spurned. That's not so. And what happened with you, and he is part and done, or past and done, it may be past, but it's not done. The cut's too deep to stop bleeding altogether. He rested his hand on her own with some trepidation. I'm sorry you've been brought to distress, but I hoped my uh, caring would, for you might be a balm toward forgetting. Her eyes welled up then, but she gave no sound of unhappiness. He kept his hand on her own until it appeared that she was lost in the depths of her own anguish. He gave her hand an affectionate squeeze, and she looked back at him anew. If it hurts so bad, do you want to talk about it? he asked. There's nothing much to talk about. We were to be married last summer, and before I knew it, he was on his way out west. He just ran away without telling you goodbye or writing anything? No, he did write me from Tennessee, but he was gone by then. I wouldn't have stopped him if I, I wouldn't have stopped him if I could. He sounded as excited as a banty rooster. If he was more interested in adventure out west than getting married, you're better off where you are. I'm trying to believe that, Robert. I'm trying so hard. My teeth ache and my hands sweat. That's hard. That's how hard I'm trying. She told him that she did not want to talk of it further. He unpacked the dominoes then and proceeded to show her how to play. She was caught up in the spirit of the game before long, and Sarah and Leah soon joined them. Leah continued her dossamer playing from the parlor hearth and, at Robert's request, sang a holiday ballad. He had loved since childhood. Sarah learned the intricacies of the game more quickly than Elizabeth, but by the time Wendell and Ben Swicker returned to the house, all of them had the game of block and draw mastered. When the evening meal was over, and once fat goose lay devoured except for the carcass, Robert pulled the last remaining present from his saddlebag, Although it was intended for family use, and as a gift of appreciation to his host, in conformity with his Aunt Elizabeth's training, he handed it to Wendell Swecker first. I don't know whether I know what it is or not, Wendell Swecker said. It's a checkerboard, Ben Swecker said. Now you can put away your old fox and goose game, Elizabeth's mother said. The two men took the game took to the game like excited children. They played by firelight, aided by one additional lamp on the edge of their playing table.
Robert and Elizabeth return to their game of dominoes at the foot of a small cedar Christmas tree decorated with homemade candles, strings of popcorn, and colorful Indian corn strung vertically from the top. Leah stopped playing her dulcimer and asked to take on the winner at the checkerboard. Finally, she had her chance and beat her brother three games in a row. It was beginning to feel like a genuine Christmas now, Robert thought. Elizabeth's mother supplied them all with popcorn, and Wendell Swicker got down his fiddle and tuned up. His large hands dwarfed the neck of the instrument as he crouched over it, locking it firmly in his fist and forearm. He performed no Christmas music. But Robert liked his playing and liked seeing the man so absorbed that his soul seemed to be lifted and so oblivious to others in the room. As the evening grew late, the other members of the family deserted the parlor. I don't know when I've ever had a nicer Christmas, Elizabeth. Wouldn't you rather be back in Abingdon? No, or I'd have been there. At least somebody might have had a Christmas present for you. That doesn't matter. You made my Christmas all by yourself. Robert, I can't tell you what I'll be thinking about a month or two from now, but when a warm Sunday comes, if you want to ride down, you can go to church with me. I'd like to do that. I'd like that very much. She told him it was bedtime and that they were keeping the household up. Sarah, who had been stationed out of hearing range, but still in sight, was summoned, and she and Elizabeth showed Robert his sleeping place. He ate sparsely at breakfast the next morning, for Elizabeth again sat directly across from him, and she wore the necklace that he had given her. She had a, on a plaid linsey dress, and he thought surely that God had not made any woman more beautiful in the world. Her eyes sparkled a little through her natural the Mirrorness, and once she f fingered the necklace with one hand as she ate with the other. Wendell Swecker left the table first, and without being asked, saddled Robert's horse and led her to the front gate. Robert puzzled a moment, not knowing whether the man was just being helpful or if he was telling him that his welcome for the time being was over and that it was departing time. When he stood with Elizabeth unduly long in the parlor, and noticing Ben through the window, holding the horse's bridle in his hands, he knew it was time to go. He shook hands with Elizabeth on the front steps and headed west for Bertha Kincanan's house. He did not mind the chilling wind. The love in his heart seemed to surge violently throughout his being, and there was a very new form of warmth that he could feel pounding pounding away. Next time, part two, chapter eight.